Though I don't know this for a fact, I think that many journalists and photojournalists had a seminal experience in their lives that led them to that particular career path. It's analogous to how some photographers felt when they first saw an image appear like magic in a developing tray. Photojournalist Brent Lewis had such a moment in college. It led him to change his studies from electrical engineering to photojournalism. It wasn't so much the subject of that pivotal story that was so important, but the, the feelings he had when he raced back to the newspaper, processed his images, and saw them laid out on the front page for the next issue. At the end of the day, it was like, cool, we're done. Page is done. We got the A1 story out. We're good to go. And I remember walking out of there, like, which should be completely tired, but I had like the shoulder of energy. And I was walking across the street heading back to my dorm and did that. If you ever seen the movie Pursuit of Happiness, like right after Will Smith gets the job, he does like this above the head clap when he's walking across the street. I, that was me. I did that. It was probably 2 a.m. in DeKalb, Illinois, and I am the only person outside on the street, and I am just clapping. And I was like, that's it. This is what I want to do. Money be damned. <laughs> we'll talk to Brent about the relationships that have played a role in his career as a photojournalist of color and how it's all led him to his current position as a photo editor for The New York Times. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, thanks for making time for me, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting up with you in person uh, in D.C. for Focus on the Story. Yep, I will be there with bells on. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're planning on some, um, I think we're taking over the portfolio reviews, and then I'm giving a talk about what yet. I haven't fully figured it out, but it's going to be good. It's going to be good. I, I'm, I'm with you there, man. So every time I go out and do a presentation, I think that, oh, I'll just do one that I've done before, mm-hmm. and I never feel comfortable with it. And I start, I just start shaking things up, and then the closer I get to the date, the more I start thinking, okay, what am I going to talk about? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. That's that's me and uh, I think the Kalish. I did that two years ago. And it worked the first year, and then the second year, it just went south. It just really went south. It was, yeah. But people people came away with some good good tidbits, and everyone now loves Bernie Mac's first skit on, um, oh, God, what is it? The Def Comedy Gym. Everyone knows that now. Okay. Everyone knows it. <laughs> Well, we got a lot to talk with you about, and I'm going to go do- go deep on some subject matter, which I hope you don't mind. Okay. But first, no, let's do it. But first off, you got to explain to me how you get from electronic engineering into being a photojournalist. <laughs> that is a, that is quite the leap. That's a good one. That is a good one. Let's just say my mother at first wasn't very uh, happy about that one, um, to put it mildly. <laughs> but um, but no. So I was at North Illinois University. I was going to be the black Tony Stark. That was my entire, that was my whole shindig. Okay. Um, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to make, I didn't want to make weapons of mass destruction, but like, you know, it's Tony Stark. And so I was there and I, it was the summer before my sophomore year. My granddad always used to carry around this big black box camera. Nothing crazy. I, it was like granddad, it's 2007 at this point or eight at this point. Like you should probably get digital. You should probably go digital granddad. He was like, no, you know, this is a great camera. I've had it for years. And so one day my cousin bought a new house and he was like, take my camera, go take a picture of my cousin, of your, of my nephew's house. And I was like, all right, cool. Whatever, granddad, give me your old camera. Walk around to the front of the house. 
open it up because it's one of these weird ones you gotta like open and look down okay. and it said Hasselblad literally said Hasselblad okay. and I was just like wow what is a black guy from the south side of Chicago doing with a Hasselblad <laughs> I don't think I took the picture I just like ran back to the front of the house I was like Granddad, Granddad's a Hasselblad he was like yeah I bought it he's trying to tell me all the stories and what he wanted to do and so I kind of had a little bit of the bug already. So he gave me his camera, went back to school, wind up running into the shop at the student newspaper. And I was like, oh, cool. I can do this for beer money. This is great. <laughs> you had your priorities back then. Huh? Exactly. It was all in line. So I went and started working at the student newspaper and I just fell in love with it. It was just like this ratio of like 90% physics and I don't know, C++ coding language and like 10% working at the paper to by the middle of the semester, it was like 90% photojournalism, 10% going to classes in general at all. So I was just hooked. Left there, realized this is what I wanted to do. Um, I was going to hold off, but my amazing wife, who was I was our friend at that time, was like, no, this is what you want to do. You're passionate about it. Go for it. Left there, went to Columbia College, Chicago, Worked at the student newspaper and just kept going from there. Got an internship at the Red Eye, Chicago Tribune. And, you know, just the rest is history in a way. Okay. I'm going to pull you back a little bit. Okay. Because when you started working on the paper, you got bit, bit had the bug. And it's like, mm-hmm. for me, there's a specific story that I've had that I've shared on the story before that the moment I did, basically, mm-hmm. I had uh, an opportunity to tell uh, tell an exclusive story. It was a lot of action happening right in front of me. I ended up on the front page of the paper, and I was like, people were reacting to it uh, once it got in print. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow. That's what it was for me. What what was the sort of the catalyst for you where you felt like, not just the taking of the picture and seeing it on a, on a appear on a white piece of paper, but the whole journalism thing, because, you know, you could have been happy just making pictures, but you got, you got sure. a, a, a bigger bug that bit you. So t- tell me about that spark. Sure. Okay. I don't know how deep you want to go. You want to go there? We take it. We'll go, we'll go all the way there. It was, i never forget it. It was a student council meeting, base level student housing meeting. Even take it further. Like it was in college. It wasn't even student council. It was like the housing, resident housing authority. Mm-hmm. It was this huge story that was going on in the paper. And they're like, Brent, you and Dave Thomas go over there and you make pictures. He's going to write the story. Someone stole like $10,000 out of the coffers uh, for resident house and authority and think it's this lady and she's on trial. And I was like, oh my God, this is great. This is definitely going to A1. This is going to be amazing. Um, A1, page one. It was a small, yeah, they didn't have an A section. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so I go over there and I'm already like excited because I'm like, oh, this is one of those big stories. We get to the door and they're like, whoa, where are you guys from? I'm like from Northern Star, from the you know, student newspaper or whatever. He's like, do you live in the residence hall? And I was like, yeah, I live in the residence hall. I literally live in this one. And they're like, okay, cool, you can come in. But then the reporter was just like, they're like, whoa, do you live in the residence hall? He was like, no, I don't live in the residence hall. Like, you can't be here. So he looked at me and it's like, I don't know, Joe Brown giving like a kid a tile mm-hmm. commercial. It was just like, Brent, I know you're not a writer, but take notes, take notes as much as you can. I was like, okay, sure, whatever, Dave, good luck. So I go in. I'm like, cool, I at least make pictures while it's going on. They're like, whoa, you can't make pictures here. 
you can't make pictures doing it. It's going to distract folks. So I'm like, all right, great. So I'm like taking notes, like really terrible notes, just about what's <laughs> going on, who's there, what. Mm-hmm. It, I don't know how Dave wrote a story off this. I'm still shocked to this day. But I got nothing. I was like really, really excited. I'm like looking to see what's going on. I'm like witnessing all the key players. And so it was, they were like, you can take pictures once it's over. So the moment they were like, she got to quit it. She was like, you're free to go. So they like banged the gavel. And the moment I picked up my camera, I think I had like a, oh God, this is like a 30D with like a 7200 on it. And I like turned it around and I like the woman who was accused, like somehow looked straight over to me. I was like, bam, got the picture. Got the picture looking directly at me, basically made like a, this weird mugshot. And then like, I whipped it back around and then photographed the guy that was like really pushing hard to like get the evidence. Mm-hmm. This guy really wanted to see what was going on. He didn't believe her. Got some photos of him like shaking people's hands and things like that. And I was like, oh, cool. Got what I needed. Dave like rushes in. He's like, Brent, what happened? I was like, here's my notes. He was like, what's this? <laughs> I, was, I was like i tried but I was like that's the person you need to talk to and then you need to go over there and talk to the, this person right here and that's where you get your quotes from i'm going back to the paper and so like, i throw my my camera bag on and i was like running down um god i want to say it's husky boulevard i don't think it was that whatever street was like running down the street it was at least like i had about the three, four block run, like to the newspaper, like oh, I'm booking, like getting in, I hop in the seat, I'm throwing my cards, I'm like, this is gonna be great. Like loading the photos in, and I see it, and that's like the perfect photo. It was the guy like shaking hands, smiling yeah. right after the whole thing went down, and the woman looking perfect at me. I call the designer, the designer runs over, he's like, Oh my god, this is great. Goes over, I throw the photos in, he starts laying out the page, boom, slap dab on A1, A1, page one. <laughs> <laughs> and then he perfectly fits the mugshot of the woman right there and it works Dave runs in the office he's typing up the story I'm feeding him some quotes and things that I remember and wrote down the designer is like dropping texts in there moving things around and I'll never forget like at the end of the day it's like cool we're done pages done we got the A1 story out we're good to go and I remember walking out of there like which should be completely tired but I had like the shoulder of energy and I was walking across the street, heading back to my dorm, and did that. If you ever seen the movie Pursuit of Happiness, like right after Wilson if he gets the job, mm-hmm. he does like this bump the oh, head yeah. clap when he's walking across the street. That was me. I did that. It was probably 2 a.m. in DeKalb, Illinois, and I am the only person outside on the street, and I am just clapping. And I was like, that's it. This is what I want to do. Yeah. Money be damned. <laughs> I don't know what the future holds. I had no idea that this was 2007 at this point, and the newspaper industry was going through a thing. All I knew was like, this is what people get paid to do on a daily basis. I want this in my life. And so that, that was it. That was the one I was hooked. So there, that's the story of the, the actual big bug that just that struck me. And I have not looked back. Oh, good. I'm glad I didn't miss that. That, that for me, it's just the same. It was the, the, the feeling mm. of one, getting access to something that under normal circumstances, someone would have turned me away from. And then getting exactly. and then being able, oh, I I can get in because I have this press pass and this camera and then on top of mm-hmm. that to be able to like produce something and be part of a team that's working in collaboration to put this story and my story ended up being on the front page of the paper too and you know mm. you know to, I think it was the two or three yeah. uh, column picture and then seeing it in there and holding it in my hand and it was just like oh hell yes give me more of this. exactly it's like. Yeah, I'm sold. Yeah, because like you said, you don't get rich from this. 
So it's it's sometimes it's the God this feeling that I get from from being able to apply myself to something I really love doing and having it result in something an experience not just a not just a mm-hmm. product that sits on a hard drive is quite amazing. Exactly, like you you can't beat that, and I think as my career like moved along and I kind of understood that like not everything's like this breaking news, but these amazing stories that you can tell. But overall, it's just that feeling. I can't beat that feeling. I can't beat the feeling of being part of history in some way, shape, or form, even on the Mm -hmm. smallest level to like the largest level. It's just that feeling that I was there and I was able to capture these moments and to give them back to people who couldn't be in the spots that I am. I wanted to make sure that every photo that is published, every photo that's out there, takes the reader and the viewer in some place that they wouldn't be able to go. And just provides them with a sense of story that maybe they wouldn't get anywhere else if it wasn't for me being in that spot. Yeah, and, and as you said, not all not all news stories are really dramatic. It's not fires and big sports events, mm-hmm. but I think that one of the things that makes it so exciting for a, a lot of the people who do it is that there's always the challenge of getting the shot, getting a good shot, yep. and that each mm-hmm. each assignment can be a test of not only of your ability to get the picture, but to do the things mm-hmm. that you need to in order to put yourself in the position to get the picture. Exactly. Where did you learn that part of it? Because I think, you know, when you go to college, you learn about writing, doing captions, making the photographs. Mm-hmm. But the real skill is being able sort of to maneuver yourself when you got all those obstacles, all those people who say, you can't make a photograph here, you can't do this, you can't do that, where you, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Where did that skill come from? Ah, that's a good one. I want to say it began with the idea of like kind of started naturally. I was always my, which I think one of my favorite things, one of the things that took me to where I wanted to be in life was just the idea of like working from my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and working from just being passionate and just going where I felt it was going to happen. It was just all these bunch of feelings. I think once in college and I started to get a little more confident, I started to realize like what this access I have can do. That's when I began finding ways around, looking where the photos are going to go down, like understanding, I think seeing a lot more because I studied photographers, I studied photojournalists, I, I studied the pictures that were being published in the paper, I studied what was going across the wires and you kind of begin to take those naps and you start to look for those hints and you're like, all right, cool. I think it was, it was a Scott Rosami photo of this dunk competition. And he was like in the rafters with a 600. And I was like, I would never figure to even go that way. And so it just became this instinctual thing about where the action is going to go. So that's why I kind of just really, I think I was more or less, I think more or less I got that confidence to try those things and go after and just realize and understand and being part of the story to Mm -hmm. a point where I knew where it was going to happen, where the action was going to go. And a lot of luck. (laughs) There was a lot of luck attached to a lot of pictures I've been able to make, but it's just putting yourself in those places and finding and just kind of assuming where those spots are going to be. And you you know, working on a a newspaper, you have to be sort of an everyman because you have to shoot you know, spot news, feature stories, sports, portraiture, mm-hmm. product stuff. You know, if someone's doing a food article, um, that, that's a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of experience that you basically have to to develop in order to be adept at all of those things. Mm-hmm. What What do you think was one of the bigger challenges that you faced in terms of being effectively diverse in that way? Oh God, it was not fully understanding 
all of that was needed. (laughs) (laughs) So I remember being in college and they wanted everyone to take like a studio lighting class. I was like, I need studio lighting. I'm about to work for a newspaper. Why would I need to light anything Mm. in the studio? That's crazy. I don't even know about strobes and flashes and power outputs and tools and techniques. You're crazy. Little did I know very quickly during my internship, I found out that all this stuff is extremely important. Very, very quickly. So for me, I think what the challenges were, all of that, majority of things I didn't have to really position, set up myself when it comes to the portraits, when it comes to the still lives, when it comes to things like that, came very naturally. Like I had experience with that. I can work on that on my own. I can work on that on assignments, whatever it is. When it came to those bigger things, that's where I had to set goals because I knew that it was certain things I was not great at. So every year from about 2011 to about whenever I, I guess, finally hung it up, which was 2016, like I had it, I had a goal. And three of those goals straight were working on my lighting, working on porch trucks. I knew that was, I was absolutely horrendous. If anyone wants to go down a rabbit hole, find my photo of Tom Hanks. That shows you where I was at um, in 2011. Yeah, it was, it was gone off terrible. <laughs> if you can, if you can find it, good luck. But no, it was just really identifying what they were and just going after them hardcore. So after I got reprimanded hardcore for a terrible photo of Tom Hanks that I really don't want any of you all to look at or find, <laughs> I knew that was where I had to improve. And so I would go out and I would look for portrait assignments. So I would look for ways to do it, do it better than I was doing before. So I would start experimenting with light. I would start working with some of my friends. I can pull off a portrait using natural light, but let's not. Let's try to see what happens if I just bring one flash in and then bring two flashes in. So I think that was really that understanding of putting things in my tool bag, as the amazing John H. White would say. So I started building that, that toolkit. And so I just knew whenever I needed something, I'm like, okay, cool, I know the light now, I can use this light here. Or even to the point where like lighting started to cross over into like my sports. I was like, oh yeah, cool, you know what? I'm gonna bring this strobe to this basketball gymnasium in the middle of Ohio because no one's asking to tell me I can't and try to see what that looks like. So it was all these things that kind of like grew over time that I just knew I had to bring in that toolkit because I knew they were missing because I looked at the pictures I was creating and they didn't look anything like what Alex Garcia was looking like at the time or what Brian Casellas were looking like or what Nancy Stones was looking like. I'm bringing everyone from the Chicago Tribune. Yeah, yeah. My heart. But yeah, it was it's just a bunch of realizing where my difficulties were and just attacking those and just going after them and being like, next time I have this assignment, I'm going to knock it out the park. So for everyone that goes looks and finds the Tom Hanks, go look up the Selena Gomez photo mm-hmm. next. And that shows you what a month, if less than a month, of work at Portrait for do. So you, you did an internship, right? Where was it? That was, I had one at the Red Eye, mm-hmm. uh, which is the smaller daily paper of the Tribune, and then the Chicago Tribune. Okay. You know, you, you uh, eventually worked at the Denver Post, and I think uh, mm-hmm. and now you're at the New York Times as, as an editor. But tell me about that time as, as in the internship, in retrospect, you know, because a lot of people are listening to this show who are in college or looking for internships because they want to get into journalism. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, what do you think is, is important about when, you, after you've gotten the internship, in, order, in terms of making the most out of it? Because everybody thinks about getting the internship and that's going to lead to something. But they, they forget something. There's something in the middle of that. So for you, what, mm-hmm. what's, what's the takeaway that anyone who gets an internship, regardless of what paper they're at, it's, it's important to, to remember? 
Okay, well, looking back, put this way, looking back for me, I wish I would have asked more questions and asked for more help, asked for more feedback, mm. um, which is something that I look at now um, as a photo editor. And I wish I could give more feedback, but I really don't have it half the time to just alone myself be like, hey, yeah, here's take some feedback about the assignment. But if someone asks me, then I'm like, all right, cool, boom. This is what I thought. This is how I think you can get better. This is what I can do next time. For my internship, I really wish I would have asked for more feedback. Also, I wish I would have figured out more story ideas. Um, that was one thing. Before I got the Tribune internship, I had an internship lined up at Tulsa World, which is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I did all levels of research. I'm talking about, I knew the demographics. I understood how the east side and the west side of the city was divided because of this riot that everyone knows that happened in 1921 now. Shout out to Washington. I, understood, I knew stories I wanted to dig up. I knew people I need to make contacts when I landed on the ground. I knew places I need to go. I knew like a church I needed to visit and just hang out at because I know they're going to have some amazing connections. Like you can ask me anything about Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I had it on lock. But when I got to the Tribune, Chicago Tribune, which wound up coming in after that, which I had to leave Tulsa behind, I didn't do that same research. I was just like, it's my city. I know my city. And I think I got, I was just way too comfortable and I didn't do the research. And I was just like, I'm going to do a story on the South side of Chicago. Great. And it was not until like almost the middle or end that I really was like, okay, housing is my issue that I really want to dig into. And I started to realize, oh, Cabrini Green is the place I need to go. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to find out what happens to the residents there. But I was already halfway through the internship. So yeah, so it's as in feedbacks, do a bunch of research beforehand, read everything you can get your hands on and be confident. Be confident, make those mistakes now. Don't feel like you need to be perfect. Don't feel like you need to knock every single assignment out the park and just try. And at the end of the day, like do you, be you. You're the photographer that they call. They were like, they had... 100 200 applications and they picked yours for a reason yeah. you have a way of way of working a way of making pictures a way of doing amazing journalism so that's what they want they don't want you to fit in their box what they have if anything they probably want you on staff for that three months to shake that staff up um i remember oh god i want to say callahan o'hare um was the intern at the denver post when i was there one year and I think just her energy, like she was, she was young and fresh at that time. Um, but just like her energy brought a whole different vibe and the way that she thought about pictures and the way that she made pictures, I want to say inspired others to be like, Oh, let me try that. Let me go this route. It even inspired me like, Oh, that's what the kids are doing now. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> I like the way that you're framing this. I like the way that you're going through it. So yeah, that's one of the things for me that like just all three of those, just look for that feedback, do your research and then just be confident, go after it and try. Cause at the end of the day, like it's three months. So work those three months to death and have fun. Yeah. Well, having fun is really a big part of it, but uh, there's one point that, that really resonates with me is the idea of mm -hmm. asking about stuff you don't know. And mm -hmm. for a long time, especially when I was younger, I didn't want to do that because I didn't risk. I didn't want to risk people thinking that I didn't know what I was doing, even if I didn't yeah. know what I was doing. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I think for people of color who are are who already feel sort of not part of immediately, you know, where you, you could mm -hmm. be the only one in the room, and you feel like yep. people are going to judge you 
in a way that's different from their their peers, it's really difficult to broach that and say, hey, I need help with this, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, it's something I've dealt with for a long part of my life, even older, you know, but I think that, 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 that idea of you can still be confident and still ask mm-hmm. for help. And oh, I think that people that, think yeah. that if you're confident, you're never asking for help because you know you know everything. And it's like, no, I'm confident enough to know that I need to ask for help. Exactly. Exactly. And it's it's really about using that that confidence. Like people are like, oh my God, that person's so confident. Like, yeah, but they're confidently going to ask for help at the end of the day. <laughs> That's what it's really all about. Like I'm gonna be like, hey, you know what? I need, I don't know this. Explain this to me. Because at the end of the day, that's and what that in turn does, it allows them to move forward confidently knowing that they've asked for help and confidently knowing how to do the next step uh, or whatever it is they couldn't solve beforehand. So, yeah, that's, I love that one. Yes. And one of the things it does, it, it builds the camaraderie. It creates the relationships, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because you know, if you're there, you know, thinking, oh, I, got, I got this stuff on lock. I don't need anybody's help. I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm just going to, you know, kick everybody's butt with all my pictures. That mm-hmm. creates a different kind of relationship in a newsroom or any place. And yep, very, very quickly. So you had the opportunity to go to um, the Eddie Adams workshop. Yes. So, mm-hmm. and uh, that's an amazing experience. Tell me how pivotal that was for you in terms of your career. Oh, God. So I was at Eddie Adams 2012. So I was 25, red team. Shout out to John Moore, Jamie. But um, that was that was a huge moment for me. First off, like, as you can like kind of break down so far, I didn't go to one of the OUs and Mizzou's, one of the big legacy schools that turn out amazing amounts of photojournalists. I think when I was at Columbia, we had Pablo was gone. Pablo was over at the AP. Oh God, Andrew Nails, who was still freelance, and Todd Pentagopoulos were like the people from Columbia who've done things. So when I first got in, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Someone actually liked my work, <laughs> more or less above anything else. But for me, it was just getting there. Step one, I think it was just this gigantic sign of approval. Like we just had that conversation about that conversation about confidence. Mm-hmm. For me, that was like a stamp of approval. Like, yo. You're part of 2,500 other amazing people have gone through this. And out of this 100, you're great. You're here for a reason because there's thousands out flying. So it was this A, confidence boost. B, it was just being in a room with these like these legends. It was just people I ironically just found my notebook um, for when I went in 2012. And I had all these names of these people, like these amazing photographers. I wish I had it downstairs. I don't have it downstairs. It was just like, I want to meet with Jim Ashton. I want to meet with John Moore. I want to meet with Tim Rasmussen. I want to meet with uh, Cheryl Diaz-Meyer. I want to meet with all these just phenomenal people. And just having them there and having them as a resource. And someone I could just walk over to and be like, hey, hi, I'm Brett Lewis. I just I just want to meet you. I just love mm-hmm. work. Um, I remember like seeing Andre Latif. He was going through the photos that I want to pull up to and it was super eye-opening for me because it was it was the it was a contact sheet, or I guess it wasn't a contact sheet, it's, you know, it was digital. But um it was the photos that kind of led up to it. And I was like, that's a bad photo, that's a bad photo, that's a Pulitzer Rise on the photo, that's a bad photo, mm-hmm. that's a bad photo. And for me, it's just like this is how it's made. So outside of being able to just see amazing work, being on a team with folks that ironically I work with one of them now, which was insane. And 
not knowing who was there at that time and not knowing where all those students were going to, like some of them are really, really good friends that we didn't know we were there together. So it just, it just gave this confidence, this camaraderie and this ability to understand that like, I belong here. I am a part of this industry and I have this bit of the stamp of approval. So yeah, and it was just kind of showed me that this industry cares so much um, about like passing this pain forward, passing to the next generation, because those folks in that room did not at all have to be nice to me. <laughs> they did not have to sit down and look at my work, but they did. And out of that room, two of those people in that room that night, James Eschen, um is one of my really, really good friends. It's crazy that I can call him a friend mm-hmm. um, because seven years ago I was like, Mr. Eschen, will you please look at my work and tell me how I'm doing? He's just been looking out for me for the last seven years. It's insane. It's crazy. And then another person in my room, Tim Rasmussen, hired me at the Denver Post. He completely uh-huh. neglected me that day. Um, he didn't pay me any money at all, didn't show up for the Prolio view, didn't do anything. But some way, oh, God, I think it was, what, two years later? I get it. Oh, I just saw the email, too. This is crazy. Two years later... I get a phone call and he's like, hey, kid, let's get an interview. Get an interview. 12 hours later, he's offering me a job at the Denver Post. So the connections that I made there were amazing. Just the confidence that was built up was amazing. And I don't think I ever fully came back down from that experience because after that four days, my work was just on a whole new level. I got back. I was at Chillic- I was in Chillicothe, Ohio at the time at the Chillicothe Gazette. If anyone can find it on a map, I'll give them a dollar. <laughs> oh, but I got back and I was just on fire to the point where like we had, I had a photo at the time, Frank Robertson. And he was just like, I don't know what that workshop did to you, but like your level is on a whole new spot. I not, I can't even tell you where you're at right now because you're way beyond where you were when you left. And he was, and then when I finally left there and went to Rockford, he was like, from the moment you went to that workshop, and you're leaving now, you've never dropped it down. Like people, some people get slumps, but it's like your slump was better than I think a lot of the work that's ever came through this door. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but between the connections and everything, I, yeah, I think I thank the workshop. And I go back every year they will ever have me. Well, you had one experience there that really struck me when I heard about it, which was when uh, there, were, uh, there weren't that many people of color there, uh, and one of them won an there, award, two. the South African mm-hmm. photographer. And then yep. tell me what happened uh, immediately <laughs> afterwards that was kind of like uh, an experience. Let's just say that. Yeah, it was it was one of those moments that like you also realize how few of you there are in an industry. <laughs> oh, God, I can't remember his name, but the photographer out of South Africa did some amazing work doing the workshop. And they give out awards at the end of everything. So he won the Nikon Award. So we got like, I think, a D. Or was the camera at the time, or a D three, probably mm-hmm. D three. He got like D three, a twenty four seventy, a seventy two hundred, with some flashes and all this stuff. Um, so he won the award, and I was like, cool. And so immediately afterwards, they go into like this whole party spiel, and like everyone's having fun, you're dancing, and there's drinks and stuff like that. And so people start coming up to me. It's like this one guy walks up, he's like, oh man, yo, congrats! And I was like, for what? He's like, you won the award. He's like. Nah, man, that, that wasn't me. And I was like, oh, 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 I'm so sorry. Uh, who didn't, uh, yeah, goodbye. And so, and so, um, I was like, one, I was like, okay, cool. You know, I, I, you know, you live 
at that time, 22 years as a black person in America, you're like, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I can't be offended by every single one. Or I wouldn't have enough time to get sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and then it happened again. So I came up with oh man, congrats, I love it all. What are you gonna do with the camera gear? And I was like, I didn't I didn't I didn't I didn't win any camera gear. And it's like, oh, are you sure? Like, yeah, I'm I'm hundred percent positive. I did not win camera gear. Oh, like, oh my bad. Sorry about that, bro. Yeah. And then finally, like a third person came up, and at this point, I'm like, all right, it's too far now. He was like, Oh, you know, congrats, man. I'm a blah blah blah. What's the name? And I was like, it's the other black guy. The other black guy. There's two of us here. It's the other black guy. The, wow. the skinny one. I'm the I'm the bigger, bigger black guy. The skinny black guys. Oh, my bad, man. I'm sorry. So when I, I think I went one more time, and then I was just like, and we're done. <laughs> <laughs> we're done here. And it it I don't know. I can say like it rub. It did rub me the wrong way. What am, I, what am I saying? It rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, at the end of things, but it also showed me that like it shouldn't just be two of us here. And you know. We don't look anything alike, but also that's just what the industry was that I'm pretty sure people in that room didn't understand that there were two black folks there. Like they just didn't know. So yeah, it was, it was definitely an experience putting it mildly, but it showed me that we have a lot of work to do. This industry has a lot of work to do, a lot of work to do when it comes to people of color, especially black and brown folks, which, you know, I feel like we've gotten better. We'll probably get some more of this later, but uh, we, we have a long way to go. Especially in 2012, it's a long way to go, and that's not long ago. I mean, not that long ago because I could have, I could have said, I could have said in my time that yeah, things are getting better. But when I hear a story like that, it's like <laughs> it should have gotten a hell of a lot better by 2012. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. You would imagine. You would imagine. Like I probably got like let me see. I probably got like some shirt from a concert in 2012. Like it shouldn't be. Yeah, this shirt that says no, it's the other black guy. Exactly. It's the other black guy. I mean, honestly, if it happened on a fifth time, I would have like walked up on stage and like, excuse me, everyone. It was the other black guy. Yes, that one. Okay, yeah, you can't miss him. Just turn around. You know exactly where he's at. It's the other black guy. But please stop. But it's that same, you know, as much as people say that they don't see color, it's amazing how oftentimes they react because of your color. And mm-hmm. here you are in a community that is supposed to be, you know, well-intentioned, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's it's ingrained into the culture as much as they may not yep. want to admit it. But, you know, mm-hmm. and I know that you've experienced going on assignment where all of a sudden they look at you and they go, oh, where's the where's the photographer? Um, <laughs> all the time. You know, like you said, that can rub you sort of the wrong way, but you, you learn how to sort of like sort of brush it off and, and, and get to work. But yeah. is it frustrating sometimes that if you're the only one on staff that you don't have someone to talk about that with? You know, because sometimes when you're experiencing in isolation, it, it makes such experiences a little more difficult just because you don't have somebody mm-hmm. you can vent with. Mm-hmm. And I think that that can be kind of burdensome, especially when you're young and mm-hmm. trying to build up your career. So tell me about contending with those moments, even though you kind of like let them roll off your back as they accumulate, you know, it can be a bit much. Yeah. And I, you know, for me, I've been, I've been, I think the, the easiest term to like even sum this up is just ideal of like slightly blessed that like I've had, I haven't actually, I've never had been on staff with another black person. <laughs> in a role of a photographer ever. I think the New York Times is okay, the Washington Post, the Washington Post. 
outside of the staff of the undefeated, which is an anomaly. It's completely all black. But as a role of being a staff photographer, I've had people that were, I hate using the term woke, but they kind of, they got it. They got it. And they've just been around black folks enough where I can like have quick conversations with them. They're like, yeah, that's, that's messed up. That's really messed up. But no, I think for, I would love it where if I was able to have those backroom conversations and luckily enough, I wind up having mentors that were black that I could call up and be like, yo, mm-hmm. Kenny, Kenny, man, they, uh, they're here while and Kenny, I don't know what to do, Kenny. Um, I'm, I'm finna, I'm, <laughs> I can't do it, Kenny. Or Denise or Achille, like, Achille, I'm finna choke somebody, Achille. Um, so I'm, I'm looking to have people I, I I can make phone calls to. I haven't had them in the newsroom, but I can make phone calls. Okay. So I think that was that was that was my savior. Um, I wish there was way people I had on staff. I just like pull them into the side room or and just like, hey man, this is this is wild, and I can't really uh, I can't really get with this. You wouldn't believe what just went down. And also I've I've I, once I got to Denver away from Rock Rock for Chill Coffee. Which probably were a little bit more suspect. Probably had I had actually a lot more issues when it came to race. Chillicothe, actually no, a lot. Those in Chillicothe, it was in Rockford and Denver. I had more, but I remember being able to kind of like vent with a little bit of people on staff. Even though Denver was, I had those conversations about dealing with race in Denver when I was like on the way out. I think it was like my last two days there. They're like, "Oh, being black in Denver, how has that been for you?" But at least I like had. In Denver, the uh, executive editor, editor in chief, was a black guy, and I've gone to his desk. I've gone to his office a few times, um, and just been like, "Yo, can I just black man and black man? Can we just? I just want to. I want to get something off my chest. That's yeah. either gone down the newsroom or gone down to Denver in general, just because he's lived in Denver for a while. So I was like, let me let me just holler at you for a minute. I was like, say my first day in Denver, you always meet the editor in chiefs or whatever place you're working with, and so I I, I didn't know he was black. I had no clue he was black. So I go in there and we're having, I'm going like, oh, hey, how you doing? My name's Brent Lewis, blah, blah. And it just quickly like turned into like a barbershop scene. <laughs> we, were just, we were just like saying like, damn, ain't shit. We were like, Obama, oh, yeah, you finna do that shit, you know? Brother, ain't that the truth? We finna, man, Obama. So I'm like, wait, cut around here. He's like, man, you know, I go to the spot. What's that? It like really just turned into like yeah, that moment. Mm-hmm. I was like, like look around the office and I'm like, one, two, two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was Greg. I think it was three of us. It was three of us. If you don't count security. So it was three of us in, yeah. in the newsroom. Um, but yeah, I was I that gave me ability to like have someone. Now, I know that many of you have been thinking, I need to get around to supporting the candid frame. But then stuff comes up. You forget and you only remember the next time you listen to an episode. I get it. I've done the same thing myself with the groups that I support with a monthly donation. But I can tell you that once you do it, you don't have to worry about it. And you also have the satisfaction of knowing that you are supporting something that you appreciate and enjoy. So why don't you put this show on pause for a moment? We're not going anywhere. And go to Patreon dot com forward slash the candid frame and sign up to contribute five dollars or more a month come on come on just just pause it right now it will only take a few minutes right now thanks 
Well, you know, you got to do um, the role of uh, of an editor at the Washington Post and now at the New York Times. So you're on the other end of this now, where you're able to, you know, hire photographers and, and things like that. And one of the things I was really kind of curious to, to to hear, since you've had experience on both ends of the table, you know, we talked about earlier about the way people get into photojournalism. You know, people go to Missouri, Missouri, Columbia, one of the big sort of photojournalism schools. They get internships. Mm-hmm. They they manage to get into like Missouri uh, Photographic Workshop or Eddie Adams. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. th- those things, those all of those things basically serve as a channel for, you know, the photo- photojournalism industry. And the yeah. access to those really each of those sort of narrows and narrows and narrows the pool of people mm-hmm. who have access to the decision makers and as yep. you said you know you went when you went uh, there were probably only two other one one or two other people of color there so well, uh, people of color in general yeah yeah so so my my question is to you especially now in terms of you know accessing the decision makers there's a there's a large number of photographers who didn't go to those universities they basically have just gone mm-hmm. out they started shooting they started hustling and yep. they may not be able to get into you know one of those institutions or can or can't afford to do an internship right mm-hmm. so what's you know what because they newspapers magazines say they want to open it up and one of the things i often hear about is like well i'm not seeing that work Right. And I think part mm-hmm. of it is like, oh, yeah. well, it depends on where you're looking. Right. But, exactly. But what can both the photographer who's not coming through traditional, well, let's start there. What can photographers mm-hmm. who are not in those traditional, you know, basically uh, pathways, what can mm-hmm. they do when they don't have the advantages of another group of people that did? So, yeah, that's that's the million dollar question. That's, that's the question that has been like keeping me up late at night just because like, you know, I co-founded Diversify and that's a way that we've been opening up pathways. But that's not everyone who's mm-hmm. out there making amazing work knows about that, because even that you have to to know Diversify even exists. You have to be somewhere attached to the photojournalism realm in general, just because of how social media works. It's not like this wide blast that goes everywhere and every human being that's ever seen it is going to apply or even want to get on or how that works. So like as many people that I've like been attached to because that are become aware of because of diversify, there's probably at least another like five or 10 out there that I, I will never know. So for me, it's always just been about, Oh God, it's, it's, this is, this is honestly keeps me up at night. It's, trying to go out and find ways to make those connections. I feel like there's many ways that you, we have the internet, um, the social media world is so much, it's so amazing, honestly. People are able to make those connections. I had kids from high school that are like, high school who are reaching out to me. I have kids who are in college shooting for the New York Times, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know anybody at the New York Times when I went for the Portfolio View or any other workshop. Like I did, people requesting sit-downs with me, coffee, whatever, to show their work all the time now because they can find people on social media. Um, They can find my email address. They can do things like that. They can hit me up. So I think it's, for me, it's always kind of like identify where, identify where you can, where the work that you want to do is being done and either reach out to those, those gatekeepers. I will, we're going to call them gatekeepers because so I don't want to go down the whole like photo editors, director of photography, whoever might be in that, that spot 
of hiring. Reach out to them. Kind of see what information they want. This industry is sometimes hit or miss, but it's overall like pretty hit. Like I've met some amazing people who easily could have wrote me off seven years ago and I've been working at Kinko's right now. Like reach out to those people, ask for advice. Do that. Reach out to photographers. I think that's another one of the avenues that I would take. Like there's someone who's worked that you are really leaning towards that you're really liking, that you're really enjoying, that you want to do, and you can see yourself doing that work, reach out to them. And work social media for that way, because I have, I can pinpoint maybe five or six people in my office that use Instagram to find new photographers that do amazing work and get hired by the New York Times and become usuals because they saw a post on Instagram or they saw them on Instagram. They did something like that on Instagram. So like use social media, reach out to people. Don't be afraid to like drop an email. Believe me, I get cold called all the time. People send me cold emails all the time. People have no, no clue who they are in the universe. It's like, Hey, I want to check my work or Hey, can I come out of the New York times? And for me, not going to lie to you, my people of color, I have an open door policy. I don't know if the New York Times wants to know about that. I don't know <laughs> if they, they might have just found out. But, like, if you call me up and I know that you, you know, you are my peoples, I'm going to be like, ah, oh, you know what? Just come out of times. Because for me, it's all about being in that space, being a see yourself in that space will allow you to one day envision yourself in that space. You can't, mm-hmm. it's hard to believe it until you see it. Yeah. And so once you see it, you can believe it. So that's why like, I, have, I have a slightly open deposit. Like, come on through. You want to you come hang out? Sit on the couch. I remember um, Deshanae Jackson out of Cleveland literally hit me over the cold email. It was just like, hey, I'm doing the work that you want to diversify. I think she was referred to me from another friend of mine. She's like, I'll, I'm in New York. I don't have any, I don't have any, I don't know who to reach out to editors wise. And I was just like, come through. Come by the Times, sit on the couch, let me see what you're working with, let me see what work you have going on. And now she's on fire. Like I waited to get her like in the system and everything at the Times. And now she's just, she's doing amazing work back in Cleveland. And now that she's at that point where I'm ready to start sharing her with my colleagues, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, you guys should check this, you should guys check her out. She's in Cleveland. And everyone's like, oh, her work is phenomenal. Her work is amazing. So now, you know, we'll see if she can get in some calls soon from uh, colleagues and stuff. But that's what I feel like at this point, you have to work your way in other ways because we're all not going to get super lucky and have Rihanna like, tweet our photo and wind up on the cover of Time. It happens. It has yeah. happened. But it's not always what's the way that's going to happen. And but it's just like, do the work, make the contact. And I would take issue if someone at the New York Times did have an issue with that because that's the way it works. It's like, oh, you went to my, mm-hmm. you went to my college? You went to Harvard? You went to Yale? You went to Stanford? Oh, we have a connection. Let's talk, mm-hmm. you know? Exactly. And, you know, if you think about the makeup of those universities, Rich. you know, it's going to be people that are like <laughs> them. So, I, I, yep. I, you know, so if anyone sort of bristles that because, you know, you're, you're having a little open door to people that you have affinity for, it uh, doesn't mean that you're being exclusive yeah. to everyone else, but at least you're, yeah. you're aware of it. And the, the question is, mm-hmm. is, are the people who are from those institutions and from those traditions and from, you know, that, that sort of standardized culture, are they aware of that, that that inherent bias exists and that they have to, you know, consider that with respect to their choices? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, that's, that's one of my, I wonder that all the time. I wish I could like find my way to like sneak in people's minds and like hear their thoughts just so I can see if they understand that. Yeah. Because even 
Yeah. Let me let me take it from from the other end because I think a lot of the time the onus is put on the photographers, on the writers, mm-hmm. that you are the one who's supposed to sort of make things happen, and it, it assumes that the institution as it is is okay. Because I'm sure that people look mm-hmm. at you and go, oh, you're a photo editor at the New York Times. The system must work. So if anyone isn't in that position, <laughs> it's because of something they're not doing that you did, right? Uh, so mm-hmm. I see I see that face. They don't see it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I see it. So, so in terms of the institutions themselves, you know, we just talked about what, you know, the photographers need to be doing, but... From, from your position, what do the institutions themselves need to be doing to change a system that even even 2020 is still affected mm-hmm. by, you know, you know a, a systemic system that is mm-hmm. still too exclusive? Not just in terms Truly. of people, not black and white, but people who are, you know, gay, you know, lesbian, women, mm-hmm. you know, all of that stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think what institutions in general need to take is first off, just take a step back and just understand where you are on the realm. Um, so many folks are just like, oh, we're doing great. We have people of color in the newsroom. And it's like, yeah, you got like three or like seven or maybe like 12. So it's just honestly understand where you're at in the situation. Next up, it, it becomes the idea of like, you got to create that outreach. You got to create that openness. You got to create space for people to come and present their work, come and be seen. And beyond that, you need to go out and start doing that work. Oh God, I wish I really didn't write down what the exact quote was, but why should it be on the, in this case, people of color, why should it be on people slightly less fortunate not to be in these spots to create change in the industry, change in the world in general? Mm -hmm. It should be these institutions that create that change. And so institutions need to understand like what they've done to create the system that we're in right now and how to go about changing that. I think for me, it becomes about creating that space where people can feel like they can be heard, can come in, can sit at that table, to have that conversation, to take yourself down from a hierarchy of it all and really just feel like, all right, you know what? We've done wrong. We've gotten that. But let's have this conversation on how we can do better. And I think it's by having more black folks in the room, more people of color in the room, more women in the room, more just across the board. Because what that's going to do is it's going to create these institutions that look more like the world around us. And we just talked about that little bit of that bias that people have. Where it's like, oh, you know, you went to Yale, I went to Yale, let's hang out, let's talk. But, you know, if you're able to sit in the room and there's more Brent Lewis's in the room and there's more whoever is it is coming from whatever background, it's going to be that ability where that email comes through and you're like, oh, you're from, you know, you went to, I don't know, community college or you're a person of color, I'm a person of color or you're whatever it is that mm-hmm. might just be, it's going to allow that conversation to happen. It's going to allow them to open that door, to create that that opening for them to come in and sit down and have that seat at that table. And these institutions need to bring, need to honestly diversify their staff, need to diversify who they're working with, need to diversify the way they tell stories and need to actually look at themselves and check their biases at the front door. Because without that, we're not going to move forward. You can increase your numbers. You can show your numbers about how many people of color you hired, how many women you hired. That's great and all, but if your biases and the people in charge have not checked those, it will not make a difference. Because at the end of the day, we're doing really, really great. The economy's doing really, really great. We're hiring people like crazy, but all those people we're hiring are going to be the first ones out the door. So 
it becomes for me at the end of the day, just like look at yourself in the mirror, take that onus upon yourself to go out, to reach out, to find the places where you can see growth and development and you can push the energy that you have that you're pushing into your friends or people who went to your alma maters and use that to encourage the next generation, the people who don't look like you and strip those biases back. So for me, that's where it's, it seems like a lot. It feels like a lot to start with. Um, but no, no, I, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's multifaceted. I think especially now, well, there are a couple of things right now. One is, is, is what's happening in terms of the newspaper, uh, especially in the newspaper industry, where all of these papers are being consolidated into smaller and smaller, you know, multimedia companies mm-hmm. where the local newspaper, you know, is, is, be, is becoming decreasingly present in a lot of communities. Mm-hmm. But also it's just in terms of the audience is changing. And, and I yeah. think that there is something to be said for creating a, a staff and a, you know, and a, basically a group of people putting a paper that are telling the stories in ways that the people whose communities are being reflected in, in the paper feel mm-hmm. like it's, it's being told in a way that they feel is relative to them rather mm-hmm. than, rather than, rather than using the sort of mythological belief in objectivity, which doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. And we're historically any community, whether it's black, whether it's Latino, you know, et cetera, it's often been told from one singular objective. And while you can have, you know, some diversity in the, in, in the newsroom, that doesn't automatically translate that, that, that individual or a couple of individual Mm -hmm. is able to have enough impact into how the editorial staff ends up thinking that this story should be told. Right. Exactly. So, and I think that's what, you know, we're kind of speaking to, because as much as I would love to see more diversity in terms of photographers and writers and editors, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's, it's the whole collective that, that has to be aware of the fact that, you know, the way we've always done things may seem to have worked, but it only seemed to have worked for a certain group of people, not for everyone. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. Like having the people in the room really does, it makes a difference, but it doesn't at the end of the day because they're not giving the onus to feel like they have the ability to stand up and have those tough conversations and raise those issues. Then what does it really do? Like, what are you, what is that person more than just a token? Like, like you got to give them that space. You have to give them that onus and give them that belief that they're here for a reason outside of just checking a box, outside of just feeling really good about yourself because you made a hire. You can tell me, but is it is it increasingly harder to do that with less staff positions existing and so much work being relegated to freelance artists who don't feel empowered to be able to express themselves in this way? Is, is mm-hmm. that a big issue? Exactly. It's a huge issue, honestly. And it's an issue that I feel we haven't fully come to grips with. I think we're still on that idea of like balancing things out when it comes to who we're working with and how we're telling stories. But it's a huge issue because the freelance, some freelancers just don't feel like they have that ability to speak up. To be like, no, this isn't the way that you should do it um, unless you have a relationship with that editor. Like I have a few people that mm, I had a few people that gave me pushback on a way that they thought I was going to cover a story, but this is what it's about. They were both white men. One one person came to me and was like, you know what? I don't think we should tell this story about Appalachia this way. And I was like, that's funny because I didn't want to tell that story anyway because I also lived in Appalachia for a very long time. I know what what these people are like. 
And the other one was like, you should probably get a woman to tell the story. I'm like, yeah, I should probably should. That's that's cool. That's thanks for thanks for flagging that. But like I've never really had many like people of color, maybe from the background, push back like this is not the way the story should be told. Mm. Um and I don't know if they're doing that with other editors. I don't know if they're doing that with other people in general feel like they have that honest outside of folks that you have like deep relationships with. Cause like I hope that all the photographers that I've worked with feel like I'm that person you can completely push back on. But you know, when you're relegated, only way that you're gonna get that call the next time is to leave that good feeling with that editor makes it a little more difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, when you got offered to do uh, be a photo editor at the New York Times, tell me about how how all that happened. Oh, okay. Um, hmm. That's a that's a that's a that's a good story. <laughs> <laughs> so um, at the time. All right, I'm gonna say shout out to uh, sorry to Kevin Merida. You're gonna hear this, but it's it's real. This is what happened. He's my boss. Is not defeated. So Winnie Richardson was leaving to go to start her new job in London. She was a photo editor, one of my favorite human beings in this universe. And they were like, "Cool, we got the spot opening." At first, I wasn't gonna apply for it honestly because that's just what you do. You're like, "Oh, I'm not good enough to be at the New York Times." I was still at the undefeated at that time. I was the senior photo editor of the undefeated. And so I was like, all right, great. So at that point, I like I knew I got some inroads at the Washington Post. I was trying to get the undefeated. So I was like, let's just go that route. You know, I was I was tight with Dudley Brooks at the time. I was great with Marianne Golan. Um, I knew the staff very well from my time in DC. So I was like, well, that seems like a route. Um, and then Jim Ashton, James Ashton, who we just talked about beforehand, these connections, um, was like, hey, the shop opening's going. I'm in the newsroom. I want you in the newsroom. You're amazing. We need you. I was like, I don't know, Jim. Ah, it's the New York Times. He's like, no, you're good. You're solid. You're really, really good. So I went, I applied. Didn't think anything of it. You know, it's one of those days you just feel like, all right, whatever. It's not yeah. going to happen. And so randomly enough, like the conversations were already happening at the Washington Post. And this looked like that was going down. And then Michelle calls me, who was a former DOP at the New York Times. and was like, hey, we want to bring you in for an interview. Now, I was afraid of this lady. I've been afraid of this woman for like my entire <laughs> career. We have been in rooms together. I she's been on panels. She was we're doing portfolio reviews. I would never show her my work. I didn't want to even talk to her unless I was going to come correct. Like I want to be, mm. I want to be the best level of myself before I talk to Michelle at all. Um, so she calls me. She's like, "We're gonna bring you in for it. We're gonna do a. I think it was a Skype interview. I think that was the first one. So we did Skype interview. Skype interview went great." And then rambling enough, I was happy to be in New York covering something for the Undefeated. Once again, so sorry, Undefeated. I love you all. Um, and so I was like, I'm already in New York. Michelle was like, oh, you're in New York. How about you just, you know, you can just meet the, meet the staff, meet, meet the photo editors, meet Megan, meet everyone else. I was like, okay, cool. Great story. How long do we have? Can I, can I go through the full, full of stuff? Really, this is really podcasting. Quick? We can oh, go. Yeah. Okay. So I'm at, I'm covering this thing for, uh, at the undefeated. I'm all the way in New York at this time. I had absolutely nothing. I parked my car in a spot where I was pretty sure I was going to get towed. It was like a, not an overnight spot at the train station. I knew it was going to get towed. So I hop on the Acela. I fly back to DC at like, I get into DC at like 10 or 11 PM at night, go pick my car up. I called my wife when I was on the train. She was like, Hey, I was like, hey, I got, a, I got an interview at the New York Times back in New York. She's like, why don't you stay in New York? Because they were going to tow my car. She was like, okay, cool, I understand. <laughs> so she like throws our kid in the car, I like run to the house, I get my suit, I put my suit in the car, we hop back in the car, I drive 
back to New York. Like literally just came from New York. Oh my God. Drive back up to New York, sleep for a total of, we get there, had to be like 2 a.m. My son at this point is like three, two. I think, it, yeah, he had to be two. He was giving me no more than two. Sleep for like three hours. I'm up, throw my suit on, go to the interview. I had to tell that part of the story because it makes it that's that much better. Um, <laughs> it was great. We have an editing test. It um, all goes well. And then basically I get back. I'm back in D.C. And the Washington Post calls. I'm like, hey, Brooke, we want to hire you. I was like, oh, okay, cool. This is amazing. Yeah, that's great. And so I immediately hopped on the phone with Jim because this is what you do when you have you know people that you can call on and have yeah. conversations with. Everyone needs mentors and people they can bounce ideas off of. So I called James I'm like, hey, this is what's going on. He was like, you should probably just call Michelle, lay it flat on the ground. I was like, cool. So I called Michelle up. I was like, Michelle, the offer's on the table from Washington Post. I got to make a move, all right? This is one way or another is going down. She's just like, hey, I we don't move that fast at the New York Times, which they do not. I love them dearly. And so she was like, you know, we're – we have to catch him another time. I understand that's what you want to do. Cool. Decision was made. Went to the Washington Post. Spent the Washington Post for like three months. And then Michelle calls back. I, and for me, I'm like, all right, something for the job at the Washington Post. I'm here, whatever. Michelle calls back. And she was like, hey, what's going on? We had like a really good conversation. And I thought she was just calling, tell her, because she was getting ready to retire. I thought mm-hmm. she was just like her last day. She was calling just to say hello. I don't know why <laughs> the director of photography was calling me to say hello and ask about my son. I don't know why. Maybe I'm that cool in my mind. <laughs> so we start talking and she was just like, yeah, you know, we want to offer you the job. And I was like, I just started at the post like three months ago. Um, she was like, yeah, people have done crazier things. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I, I don't do crazy things like that. She was like, think about it. Think about it. Because maybe you should do crazy things. So lo and behold, they Megan came in, who Megan Long, who's the new DOP over there, kind of laid it on thick. My time at the Washington Post wasn't what I completely imagined. And this was sounding really, really good. And I was just like, also, we had a, my wife and I had a thing where, like, wherever we were, my son turned five, we were staying there until he graduated high school. Okay. So I was thinking about the long game, and I was just like, let's do it. And I was just like, you've, you want to, you know, it's a spot. You, I never really wanted to work at the New York Times. It was just not a spot of mine. I don't want to live in New York, but we found a neighborhood outside of New York, found the suburb of New York that we really liked. We're like, let's, let's just do it. Like, why not? Like, you've taken all these risks. We've made all these moves. We've gone from Chicago to Chillicothe, Ohio, to Rockville, Illinois, to Denver, from Denver to Washington, D.C., from Washington, D.C. to, I guess, Washington, D.C. again. So it's like, let's, let's, just, let's just do it. Let's just do it. What's the worst thing that happened? But everything fails to go back to Chicago, it's fine. Um, I like the, the Mexican food there better anyway. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and that's we just we just did it. I just went for it. It was the craziest thing ever. But like they they saw my work at the undefeated and they said that was great. The work a little bit of work I did at the Washington Post, I was posting that stuff, so they saw that. And then you know, the work with Diversify, it was like we want your knowledge, we want we understand the photographers and who's out there in the universe that we're not seeing. Because there's people that are mm. not on Diversified that I know you know of, and we want them in the, the page of the New York Times. We want those stories here. So awesome! That's a great story. I'm glad we got that in. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was it was. Whew, that was wild. 
Well, my last question, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or have recently discovered. So who would the photographer be and why? That's a good one. I got like three or four or five or 12. Let me see. I think you, I think you got my, one of my favorite human beings in the world already, Miranda Barnes. I love her to death. She's, I, I like to, let me just state that here right now for anyone else. I hired Miranda Barnes first. All right. Okay. There's there's some photo editors out here in the world that think that they hired her first. I hired her first. Brent Lewis hired Miranda Barnes first. <laughs> I just have to put that out there and put it on put it on wax. But um, I think for me, I would recommend. I'm gonna say I'm gonna keep the Chicago. I'm going with my guy Nolas Anderson. I love Nolas's work. He's one of those people who I came across much in the way that many editors should. So I look at photographers and find photographers for it is Instagram. So I came across him with Instagram. He did this amazing work for my guy, Joe Fresh Goods out in Chicago. Um, when he came out this line of thank you Obama shirts, took in that by storm. I saw the shirts, I was like, oh, I'm still, but I was like, I really, was like, I'm really digging these photos though. Like who took these photos? It was like Chance, the rapper was there, wearing the shirts, it was great. I was like, who took these photos? Got down to it, and it was Nolas Anderson. I was like, okay, let me let me see, let me let me see what he's about. Went to his Instagram account, and I was just like, yo, this work is crazy. It's not in my wheelhouse usually. It's not hardcore photojournalism, not documentary at all. It's just really amazing portraiture. And then as I dug deeper, you can see he has those documentary roots and things like that, and just the way that he goes about creating these these images that like captivate you and kind of put you in this mold, put you in this zone. Are just phenomenal and then on top of that just the way that he he works he's like a really methodical brother like you can tell like how he does it um and pulls these things together and builds and it's just phenomenal watching just the growth he's done since i found out about in 20 i think it was 16 17 to like now so he's the he's the person i want to i would say that i just i'm in love with also you already have talked to numerous of my other people so i <laughs> so i had to throw you somebody that you did not have all right well uh, thanks for that and, and thanks yeah. for making time for me today i really do appreciate it no problem at all thank you for having me this has been amazing and thank you for like getting me i was feel like i was actually able to talk about some real stuff because use that go things i'm like yeah no everything's fine the industry's <laughs> so crazy but you know we're trying to diversify it the best way we can brad yes yes we are so I was able to actually have a real conversation. Like, yeah, man, it's it's crazy right now. It's just wild, and uh, we got we got to do better. We don't do better. I don't I don't know what we're gonna do yet, but I'm working on it. I'm just I'm a secret squirrel inside inside <laughs> the base. That's your new T-shirt, man. Figuring secret squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Better trademark that. I'm I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I will. It's going it's going to be a T-shirt. Like I'm I'm your inside. Need to know anything about? The I got you. I got you. You want to? You want to know stat? I got you. Yeah. Anybody want to do the times? I got you. So like I'm 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 leaving the door open. Doors open. It's not even cracked. I'm not even hiding anymore. <laughs> Doors just wide. Just come on through. Anybody want to come on through? Come on through. <laughs> Thanks to Brent for sharing his time and story with us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting blewisphoto.com and discover some great, talented photographers of color by visiting diversify.photo. I'll be in Washington, D.C. for the Focus in the Story Festival in the fall, 
and a Memento Photographic Workshop in El Paso, Texas in August, as well as my week-long workshop in Tokyo in December. You'll find details on all of these on our website. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have led people to take a chance on us and allowed us to grow. Along with my recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, I just released my latest ebook, Nine Pictures, Nine Stories, Volume 2. The first one got a great response, and I'm back with a follow-up where I discuss the stories behind nine images that I created last year. It's only $8, and your purchase is another way you can support the show. Purchase that and any of my previously published ebooks by visiting the website. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to Gabriel Castellan, Judy Ryan, and Christina Selby for their recent contributions. I so appreciate your support. And if you found that you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.